Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Asian Americans. Welcome to the show. Whether this is your first time listening or your 86th episode with us, I am so grateful that you are here. My name is Jerry Wan, your host of the show. And for the last eight and a half months, I've been blessed to share amazing, unique, and important American, Asian American stories. They are American. Uh, Asian American stories here with you. And so as we take time this week, Thanksgiving week, to reflect on what we are most grateful for, even amidst crazy year that we've had, I just want to say thank you for every single person who's listened to an episode, to our amazing and wonderful guests who've trusted me to tell their story here on the show, and to every single person who has engaged with us on social media or has sent us a note. So thank you so much. Uh, this week's special guest is no exception to our amazing roster of people who've shared some amazing and unique stories. Really excited to share Daniel's story with you. Hope you enjoy it. And if you do enjoy it, please let us know by leaving us a comment on our social media, or more importantly, by leaving us a review on Apple Podcast. Thank you so much. And here now is my conversation with Daniel. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Asian Americans. And wherever you are and whenever you're listening to this, we wish you all the health, safety, and happiness in the world. We are recording this right in the middle of November. We're, in fact, actually recording this on Veterans Day. And so to all of our veteran friends out there, a delayed thank you to those uh, who serve in your families. We thank you as well um, for being the support system that we need as, as hard as these times may be for a lot, a lot of us. And so to all of our veterans uh, who have served, who are continuing to serve, in this wild and crazy time, thank you, thank you, thank you. You know, here on the show, I try to find people who shatter stereotypes and go sort of beyond the barriers of what we typically consider Asian or Asian American career choices. And, you know, we've heard from in the past, you know, some episodes, uh, some pretty interesting job descriptions and uh, career paths that people have chosen. And so when our guest today, Daniel, emailed me, maybe a month or two ago, um, saying, hey, this is what I do. I'd love to come on your show. I was so excited because it's something, I, it's my first time uh, knowing that somebody who looks like me, who looks like us, does this and did this. So I was really curious to learn more about him. And, and since then, in the, um, the articles that I've read that he's written and then doing a little bit of uh, research on my own, I'm so excited to share our conversation today with professional ballet dancer, Daniel Cho. Hi, Daniel. Hey, Jerry. Thanks so much for having me. So that phrase is something that I don't think is very common to us, and it's not a, a negative thing. It's just something that um, arts in general um, is not something that many of us, especially who are immigrants here in the States, are encouraged to pursue. We talk about all the time, and it is a well-known fact amongst our peers, obviously, that our parents came here to survive, and they wanted for us to have stable, you know, financially stable careers. Um, and, sure. and for many of us, while it was well-intentioned, passion, arts, pursuit of creativity were not necessarily too encouraged because of some of the stereotyped and perhaps true concerns about financial stability or, you know, what is the path there. And so really excited to learn all about that, how you found that passion, because as, as we'll all learn soon, it's something that wasn't, you know, it's not like your parents took you to dance class in your yeah. In your earlier years, and you evolved into this amazing dancer. Um, you discovered right. it a little bit later in life. So, but yeah, let, let's roll back the clock a little bit and learn about the Cho family. How did you? 
How did your family become Korean American? Um, when and to where did you guys immigrate to? And, and share with us a little bit about the early days. Sure. Um, so yeah, so my parents met in Seoul, and my mom went to uh, Iowa Women's University. She came from like pretty um, a pretty privileged background, and same with my dad. I would say they're pretty like upper middle class when they were growing up, and they my mom knew right away that if she were to have a kid that she would not want to have them grow up in korea um this was due to kind of the, the military requirement um so for people who don't know in korea every male is required to go to the military and serve for two years and also the very kind of brutal strict educational system that is in place in korea um you know with like hagwons and kind of the the amount of pressure that is placed in society based on like kind of the school you go to and how that sets you up socioeconomically for the rest of your life. So they knew, both of them knew that they wanted to uh, move to America and have their kid grow up there because um, they don't want to raise their kid in that kind of environment. And so they came to um, like the LA area first. And I remember hearing stories about, because they were coming from Korea from like a pretty like upper middle class, but coming to America, they had nothing. So I remember hearing stories about my dad who would attend school during the day at like college. And then he would stay up all night vacuuming department stores as like his part-time job. And then my mom worked at like a little clothing store and she talked about how this one time for lunch, she like got McDonald's. And then she realized it was too expensive, like they couldn't afford it. So after that, she she would resort to like eating popping kimchi like in the bathroom. Because <laughs> so I mean, just stories like that, you know, like. So my parents really sacrificed a lot. I am the only child and I actually um, was not really supposed to be born. Um, and so there was a lot of expectations for me as a as an only child from my mom and dad who had come to the country to sacrifice everything. Uh, so growing up, I, I'm from the Bay Area in like Silicon Valley, like the Palo Alto Mountain View area. And from a very early age, I remember the pressures of what was expected of me as a growing up with um, two Korean parents who had immigrated to America. And I remember constantly feeling this disconnect because in the household, um, I would hear comments like, oh, well, like, eventually when you take care of us, when you provide money for us, because that's very common in Korean culture, like when you grow older, you take care of your parents. And but feeling this disconnect where I would be growing up outside of the household in Western context, where it's all about, especially in California, like, what are you going to do? Like, how are you going to change the world? What, like, what are, what are your passions? Like, um, kind of like this individualist, collectivist, disconnect you know and like it I remember feeling that from a very young age and not really thinking much of it and now I realize looking back on like how much that affected me as a person um so my dad had climbed up um like many different ladders in many different industries and eventually he was like a businessman for I for a company that um dealt with like semiconductor chips and he always talked about how he didn't necessarily like the job but um, but again, a very like Korean mentality, you don't necessarily like your job, but you do it to support the people around you. And it was only through his efforts that I was able to go to like all these really selective private schools in the area since first grade. Mm -hmm. And 
it was really, really established for me that I was supposed to go to like a very good college. Um, Cause that was the reason they were putting me in private schools. And I remember little things like not being allowed to play video games after the third grade, because I had to go to like Harvard. <laughs> and then in fifth grade, I remember for like my birthday, I got like a book of a successful Harvard college application essays. So the pressure was on. Yeah. Um, and doing all this outside tutoring besides all the private schooling I was already doing and um, and later, like I had three separate college counselors, but we'll we'll get into that later. Oh my! So, goodness. yeah, it was a lot. So you're um, being groomed basically to be what yes. they had defined as. We want this to be the result of our sacrifice. One hundred. Like they had a very specific vision for you. Yes, and and it was and one for me, school. I, um, it wasn't necessarily one school. It was just an Ivy League school. You know, what, one of the <laughs> one of the three or four. One of the, yeah, one of the top schools in the nation. Um, <laughs> so I felt that pressure from a very, very young age. And obviously I didn't think much of it because I just was like, okay, well, I guess that's just how it is, you know? Um, and then in seventh grade, we moved to, I transferred schools. And the first private school I went to before that had no extracurriculars. And so it was all just studying. And so the second school that I went to, it was called Harker. And it's the kind of school where when I talk to people who are from the same area, I tell them I go to Harker and everybody goes, oh, Harker. So it's like <laughs> one of those, <laughs> one of those private schools. But they had extracurriculars. And I remember seeing one of the choirs perform at like this like assembly. And I just knew at that moment, I was like, that's what I have to be doing. Like, that is it. Like singing, performing music, like. I don't know what it is like that. That is it. And before that I had done, I was doing piano for five years and violin for four. Um, and I was just doing them because what other Korean kid wasn't doing that at that age. Um, but it's something I about it's the fascinating because the, the, those extracurriculars, uh, our parents saw it as a means to an end, right? Yes. Like, and yeah. it was also be good enough, mm. but don't be the world's best, right? Like it was always, at least, you know, some of the activities that me, my brother and, and other friends like be good at it so, so that you can put it on your resume or at least, you know, join the school something. For sure. But then the moment you cross the line of like, maybe this is a forever thing, they go, no, 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 no. We, want, no. we don't want you no, to no, be no. that good, which is exactly. this weird thing because the constant pressure to be great was there. But then they mm. pulled back when you're like, you know, like, this is a quick side story. Like my brother and I belonged to a swim team when we were in junior high school. But mm -hmm. then we just went to practice. We never went to the meets. Whoa, like, that's crazy. Right, weird, right? We were one of the few kids yeah. that like, you know, and, and I'm sure like finances had a lot to do with it too, but like they just wanted it for exercise and they just wanted it for discipline. And, but mm -hmm. they didn't want us to compete. It was very, um, you know, at the time I was like, whatever, it's less swimming for me. So I didn't care. But looking yeah. back on it, it was just sort of this like, they, they were also trying to balance, you know, being good at extra stuff, but only if it would help you get to the next thing. Yes. Yeah. And almost, I, I almost felt like we're going to make you do this so that we can tell other people that you're doing this, <laughs> you know, like, cause that's also such a Korean thing, you know, like thriving success from what other people are doing around you. I feel like, yeah, so true. Um, so anyway, so I saw that choir perform and it was like an open house, I think. So it was like my first time at the private school. And I just said, that's it. Like, I have to be doing that. I don't know why that's just singing. Like that is it for me. 
and I got into the private school and I auditioned and I got into the choir and I was like I felt like that was the first time I had like found myself like something about performing like just the emotional catharsis of it even at like seventh grade like I just knew like this was it like had to be new than that and um and my parents were kind of like oh okay like that's nice like an extracurricular you know like it's something that you can do while you study and go to harvard right so um i just was like okay whatever like i don't care as long as i get to do this like i'm fine um so then so then we go to high school and so the kind of private school i went to was very very competitive um if you went to like usc or uc berkeley you were considered average um if 25% of the kids went to Ivy League schools every year. Um, it was just really, really, really competitive. And, you know, I, I did see a lot of people in that context who really thrived on that. Mm. And they, they love the competitiveness of it. And it, it, like, motivated them. And they wanted to do better than the person next to them. But for me, it was the complete opposite. Seeing that kind of competition, it shut me down. And I couldn't, I couldn't handle the pressure. And basically throughout high school, the only thing that kept me going, kept me alive was the arts. And so I would be doing eight shows a year, extracurricular, I would be doing theater, dance, music, like everything you can name. And for me, I knew my favorite was doing musicals and singing. And so I was taking voice lessons. I was really invested into becoming like, um, going into vocal performance in college. And so I was just really, really invested in that. So depressed in high school, like, mm. I would wake up and I just, the only thing I lived for was the arts. And I always say like, this is a little dramatic, but I always say in high school, like, I feel like the arts saved me. Cause like, I don't know what I would have done without them. Cause I just couldn't, the pressure was just too much. And, um, a little quick, little backstory also. Um, uh, so in Korean families, it's really important. Like the, the lineage of who inherits the last name on the dad side family. And so for me, on my dad's side, he has like four other siblings and I have a bunch of cousins, but out of all of them, I was the first one, first male to inherit my grandfather's last name, which is Cho or Cho. And in college, it, sorry, in high school, there was all this pressure because it was like, you are, the, my grandpa would call me and be like, you are our family's hope. You are the future. You are our favorite out of all the cousins. And I, you know, <laughs> let it be known. I had, I had girl cousins who went to Harvard, who worked at Google. Like they were plenty successful. And here I was this depressed kid who just really wanted to sing, having my, having my grandparents call me and be like, you are our sole hope for our entire family. Like God. it was a lot. It was so much to deal with at that time. Um, <laughs> it was pretty ridiculous. Yeah. And so then when it came time to apply to colleges, I had like two separate college counselors, like outside of the ones I had at school already. And um, I applied to 30 colleges. Whoa. And that's, that's counting all the UCs as one. So, but so, how many applications? Oh, shit, really? Yeah. So, so like it was 30 like separate 30 applications. different applications. Yeah. Yikes. Yeah. And... And so I was, and that was obviously because my parents had kind of decided that for me. And so I had originally wanted to go into college for like a vocal performance or like singing. 
So my parents were like, okay, whatever, just double major that because we get it. Like you're really <laughs> passionate about it, but double major that was something. And I just was like, okay, whatever, like I'll do a minor or something, but I really want to do this music thing. And so my best friend at the time, um, Michelle Holt, if you're watching this, <laughs> she was also going into um, vocal arts as well. And I have this distinct memory of listening to her audition song. Mm. And she was like this amazing, um, she's like this amazing color tour soprano and i heard her audition song and i was like i'm not i'm not cut out for this like i'm not good enough <laughs> um and i also at that time i was thinking about like you know i had grown up quite well off and privileged due to the sacrifice of my parents and i had gotten used to certain things and so i was trying to be realistic i was like okay well will i really be okay without those things and so i wasn't sure and so i was like okay well i'll just i'll go to a school that um, has both, has good arts, good academics, so I can figure out what it is I want to do. And Swarthmore was actually the 30th school that I applied to. And it was because my college counselor was like, it was, I think it was like the 30th. And so all the apps were supposed to be in by January 1st. And so on like December 30th, my college counselor was like, oh, I think you should have Swarthmore. And I just was like, okay, whatever. Like it's the last one. Like at this point, I, I don't care anymore. So I just wrote something out of my butt for the common app essay and I just sent it in and Swarthmore ended up being my very first acceptance and I was like what and then I showed my I showed my parents and they're like this is a great school like it's ranked super high like it's liberal arts like it'll have great arts and academic balance for you and so that was ultimately the school that I ended up choosing um and so I was just so grateful that you know I had chosen a school that like Fit the, fit the standards and like it wasn't it was an ivy league school but it was but at that year a korean newspaper came out with like college rankings out of all the schools and swarthmore is like number three there and it so, is because i i was curious about that because like you, you set up this entire like lifelong dream of your parents or goal of obviously yeah. household names right and um swarthmore while it is obviously globally recognized as one of the top schools it's got great programs it's not tip of the tongue household name, particularly in the exactly. Korean American community as, you know, that's a, you know, uh, when, when, when your mom goes to church and tells all the folks over there, like it's not a household name. Right. So there's yeah, a few other schools completely. like that out there that are amazing schools like Claremont down here or Pomona or, you know, um, some of these yeah. liberal arts schools, particularly that are smaller in size. Um, I am glad that your parents, you know, at least saw the way that you did. Um, because there's so many great schools, but all, too often, um, in our community, we, we judge by brand names, not the quality of the schools or, you know, because I, I think that's really unfortunate. I, I think a lot of schools yeah. and a lot of, um, employment opportunities even don't get their light of day or don't get considered because it's not a braggable name. Um, Completely. but I, yeah, but I, you know, if, if you're out there and you go to these schools that maybe aren't household names, like who cares? It's what you do with a degree and you know, what, what you learn from there and who you meet. Um, that's cool, man. I, I congratulations. Cause I think it's, it's an amazing school. Um, it's a great Thank school. You. And, um, I think it actually is more impactful. Obviously we're going to hear the rest of your, you know, life's journey, but sort of going from there. Right. Um, mm. so you always had this pursuit of wanting to do performance of some sort, right? Um, yes. And so you went to a school and it's a very, very small school, relatively speaking, 
that would obviously sure. also give you a little bit more personalization in your academic career. Um, but what about, was, was there a particular program there that would allow you to do both sort of balance the, uh, the hard sciences or the hard academics of, uh, the school versus pursuing some of the artistic releases that you wanted to, the paths that you wanted to go down? Yeah. Um, you pretty much said it right away. It's, it was kind of the flexibility of, uh, the, and the freedom to kind of take all the classes that I would want to take. And, um, for me, what really sold me was the campus itself is really, really beautiful. There's like this great walkway in the middle of it, it goes up the hill. And like when it's, um, during when I toured, it was like the leaves were falling and like, you know, it was just like this really idyllic, amazing school. And what's funny is that I actually, I narrowed down, uh, my acceptances, um, cause I ended up getting into all the liberal arts colleges I applied to. And I was like, okay, well that kind of is, I don't think that's a coincidence. And I narrowed it down to Swarthmore, Haverford and Vassar. And I actually really wanted to go to Vassar because that's where Meryl Streep graduated from and had a really strong reputation for the arts. Now, of course, my parents wanted, really wanted me to go to Swarthmore. Why? Because Vassar was number 16 and Swarthmore was number three. And, <laughs> you know, we got in this huge fight and I was like, you don't know me. Like, like this is my dream. Like, I, you know, teenage angst, like coupled with the Korean American pressure. And then after I toured Swarthmore, I was like, I was like, there's a reason why it's not. <laughs> um, also, Vassar's a pain in the ass to get to. Yeah, because it's in upstate. It's in Poughkeepsie. It's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, um, but I visited both and that ultimately I was like, okay, well, Swarthmore, um, again, like the freedom of kind of getting to choose whatever I wanted to study, the small class sizes, um, and just the beautiful campus, you know? Um, so, and actually another reason was, um, so I chose Swarthmore and I was like, I kind of, I was like, I definitely am going to do something arts related, but I don't know what exactly. And so another really good friend of mine, Daisy Mormon, shout out to you if you're watching this. She was a dancer um, uh, and we were friends and she had been bugging me all throughout high school to get me to take a dance class at her studio. And I had always kind of rejected her because rejected is a harsh word. I'd always kind of been like, eh, because I always said like, I'm a vocalist, like I'm a musician. I was very like hoity-toity about it. Um, and I was so certain that I wanted to do that. And so I got to this point where I was like, okay, I don't think I want to do that anymore. Also because the idea of sitting in a practice room for six hours a day was like, it mentally, I think I wouldn't have been able to handle that. But anyways, before college, she was like, okay, are you going to finally come take a dance class? And I said, okay, yeah, sure. I'll, I'll just do it. And I took that dance class at her studio and I walked out and I was like, I'm going to be a professional dancer. And I just knew like, after that class, like, I remember that I have that memory. So vividly in my head, I just walked out and I just knew at that moment, I was like, I'm going to be a professional dancer. I'm going to go to Swarthmore. I'm going to major in dance and education. But what, what about that class? What was it a I think, moment? Was it like, cause it's very rarely and very few of us have these life defining moments that are so crystal clear in our, in our head. Yeah. And then you can pinpoint it to an exact hour in your life where, you had this mm -hmm. experience, like what, what was it about the experience that made you so convicted? Yeah. Um, that's such a great question. I think it was a combination of kind of the physical, um, catharsis that comes from dance. And like, you are exercising your body, you're, um, doing all these physically really challenging things. And so you have like the physical fulfillment of it, but you also have like the emotional, like 
kind of what story are you telling with your body? Like, how are you relating yourself to the music? And I think a big part of it also was it, it was very obvious to me that like this was an outlet where I could take all the skills I had accrued through my experience with music and just apply it in a different context. And I could still perform, which was like my lifeline, you know, I could still perform, but I had this new challenge, you know, of, of learning how to move my body in such a foreign way and make it look seamless. Like, and, um, it was kind of like the community aspect because you know when you when you do voice lessons you're very isolated and it's very like you're very in mm -hmm. your head but it's like with dance like you're with other people you're moving together like and just like the endorphins that come with you know physically moving your body and it was just like that kind of amalgamation of the two things i just was like this is it and i just knew like and it was crazy because i look back and i'm like i was insane like <laughs> knowing <laughs> in that moment like that that was just it you know, but what what had you um, done before then on the physical side that because obviously right, right. dance is extremely strenuous, right? It takes uh, a ridiculous amount of training to get people's bodies to that form. Um, so you don't wake up one day and be like, hey, I'm going to be a professional dancer, right? Because yeah. far, far, <laughs> far from stereotypes, it is an extremely physically demanding, uh, you know, regimen. Um, what because I, I understand the. The musical side of it, you had, you know, you, you sang before, you loved music, you loved performing, but like what had prepared you or what had given you uh, the confidence to be all in on, on the physical side of things? Yeah. Um, so throughout, throughout high school, I definitely, I did, I did like dance performances and especially I was in a lot of musicals and there was a lot of dancing in that. And it was kind of like, I'm doing in that, in those settings, it was like, I was dancing to supplement my main objective, which was to sing or like I have to do I have to do this little dance thing because it is like what my character is doing in the musical so like I never thought of it as like something that I could focus completely on and in those process in those processes of learning those dances I I kind of always had a natural inclination of picking up steps and like moving my body in a certain way and a lot of people were like oh like a lot of my teachers were kind of like oh like you should take dance classes and I always was like no but like I'm just doing this as a side thing like I really want to do music and I think it was just the nature of being in that setting where it was like dance is the primary focus, like in a dance class, instead of like a rehearsal for a musical or like a rehearsal for a play. Um, and so I knew I had somewhat of an inkling towards it because I knew I could pick up steps. And um, I think I just had um, a good understanding of like how to move my body. Um, but I'll get into later, like when, you know, when we started, when I started ballet, <laughs> not not as so take, easy as so, i thought it would be yeah let's go back to that moment so you're you're, you're 20 years old you, you take this class uh what what year were you in school oh so this first class was um it was right before i went to swarthmore so oh okay okay like, okay i was like 19 what, take, take me to the process of um wanting to continue the educational path because i find this fascinating right um, mm. you, you have this transformational moment, you know, dance was going to be your thing, um, to, as with very many creative outlets, um, traditional education may not be the best place to hone your craft and to network and to get all the, you know, um, I guess in, in some form, the apprenticeship that it may require to be at your yeah. best. Um, why the decision to continue down the academic path to get the degree and, and to check those boxes? Um, when you knew in your heart of hearts that you actually wanted to pursue, um, you know, something on the other side of creativity. Yeah. 
such a great question. Um, so I took one, I took one ballet class my freshman fall and then that really solidified for me. I was like, I'm going to do ballet and I just knew. Um, and I actually, that, that next summer I found like a dance program that I could go to that, that really to start my like, um, training to become a professional ballet dancer. And so that's why I said I started ballet at 20. Cause that was when I really was like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to do this. And so when I went to the dance program, it was at um, Point Park Conservatory in Pittsburgh. And that's actually one of the biggest, most competitive dance conservatory programs in the nation. And I went there for a summer. Um, and I actually had the opportunity to transfer there hmm. uh, my sophomore year. And Point Park has incredible um, arts dance training, um, but their academics were akin to kind of like a community college level in, in the Pittsburgh area. And well, number one, my parents were no way in hell were they going to let me transfer to a community college. Um, so they were, they were not going to let me do that. And also I knew, I think I knew deep down, like I had, I had so many educational opportunities growing up and I knew that I didn't want to give that all up completely. And I knew that at the time that ballet was going to be my main priority, but I also could imagine a future where I would want to give back, you know, I would want to be a teacher and I'd always had inklings to like become a teacher or professor. And so, um, and I also knew like the opportunity and the privilege to attend an institution like Swarthmore, you know, I, it didn't, it didn't make sense for me to just give that all up. And I was at a point where I was realizing at the time that because I was in a small liberal arts college, the dance department was not very big. I was the only male who was really majoring in dance. Um, I found ways to kind of to make the most out of my time at Swarthmore. And that involved, you know, um, getting funding to take classes within Philadelphia because it's about 20 minutes outside of Philly. Um, I, I got to study abroad at like a dance conservatory in London for a semester. Um, and also because I knew I wanted to major in education because I, I, I did envision a future where I would be giving back, excuse me, as, um, as a professor, as an educator, um, of dance, um, and also my parents. <laughs> that, what were your, so I, I know we keep going back to family and I, you know, and I hope, and I think most of our audience understands sort of the pressure that you felt burdened with, um, because particularly in the Korean culture, uh, the sons have this ridiculous sort of unfair burden of yeah. legacy, uh, call it legacy, right? Like you're carrying on the name, you have to be, and it's unfair. I think it's an archaic crappy system. Um, I, you know, uh, I, I get it. You know, I'm one of two sons. My brother's older. And so uh, I sort of like the pressure being off on me. Um, mm. And like I had a kid first. And so the one grandson in our family sits in, in my tree and is sort of thinking about like, I don't want to like, it'd be awful to tell he's almost four. Like you have to carry on the one legacy name and be great and make all of us proud. Like, yeah, that, that's, not cool. Um, so I, I say all that because even amongst sort of you finding this passion to go forth and chart your own career in dance, you constantly are thinking about your parents' reaction, their buy-in, mm -hmm. their reaction uh, to what you're going to do. Um, and was there 
and then you mentioned it earlier, right? Like, okay, cool, do performance, but double major in something else, right? It's always not completely discouraging the thing, but also saying, okay, fine, maybe it's a phase, he'll get over it, and eventually yeah. he'll figure it out and go be a consultant or whatever, right? Um, like, how did you, when, when did you finally decide um, internally that you were going to go full steam with the thing that made you happy and, and you get it and I get it. And I just want to remind our audience too, that it's not binary mm-hmm. just because you do something that makes you happy does not mean that you hate your parents and it's not dishonor. Yeah. It's not disrespectful. It can be both. It's extremely difficult and delicate. Um, but it is not as starkly black and white as maybe we were led to believe growing up that, uh, we find our own ways to honor and serve our parents. Um, and it's certainly going to be not by the definition that they had in mind. Um, but I think that pressure also keeps so many of us from pursuing these amazing careers and opportunities that, uh, you know, spark joy in our lives. Um, yeah. Because we have this deep, deep voice that we have to unlearn. And maybe it's nearly impossible to completely unlearn, but, to ask, you know, uh, to dig deep. So tell me about that process of, yeah. you know, did that also get you to think that like dance was always going to be a hobby after you came back from your nine to five or, you know, something that you weren't able to pursue professionally? Mm-hmm. Well, so I just, after that first dance class, I, I didn't feel like I had a choice. Like it just was so clear to me that like, this is what I had to be doing. And when I finally got around to telling my parents about it, which was, uh, my dad came in because he had a business meeting near Philadelphia. So then he flew in and we had dinner. And he talks about this moment a lot too. We were having dinner at like this like really nice restaurant, like on top of like a hotel. And then I was like, dad, I was, like, I'm going to be a ballet dancer. And I think my parents were both really, really shocked. And, and they were just really um, taken aback. But I think th- they had never seen... I think that was the first time they had seen me say something so like indisputably confident. Like I just was mm-hmm. like, this is what I'm going to be doing. Because I think in high school, like I, again, with the pressures of what the culture kind of, the really competitive academic culture kind of encouraged, I, I really had no confidence. I was so insecure about everything. And and you know, looking back in high school, like I was as academically capable as my peers, but I just, I just didn't think, I just didn't believe in myself. And that was the reason why I consider myself like dumb or like not capable, not adequate enough. And I think they were really taken aback by how I just was like, this is what I'm doing. This is how I'm going to do it. And that's just how it's going to be. Um, So I think that was kind of a bit of a shock for them. And at the same time, I really have to commend my parents because they are not at all the typical kind of Korean stubborn, narrow-minded parents. And um, I, I can't thank them en- enough because they have tried so hard to understand where I'm coming from and why I feel this way. And so I feel like I also just got so lucky with the kind of parents that I had. And a big part of it was, um, so when, when I went to college, my parents had fulfilled their duty for their child, right? Cause I had, got got into a school that was highly ranked enough for them to talk about to their peers. <laughs> <laughs> and so they moved back to Korea because they had to take care of their relatives. 
Um, but it was really hard for them because as much as, as much as they supported me, other people in their communities were cold or like rejected them for what they're some, for what they're, for what I was doing. And it was as if like, no matter how much you try to understand, they were, they were in a community, they're in a society, Korean society where people don't care about that. People care about how much money you make people care. Again, this is all quite a generalization, just in my experience. Um, People care about what your profession is. People care about what, what you're doing for your parents. And, um, and so for my parents, it was so hard. Like my mom would say things like, I, I can't hang out with this group of friends anymore because they like look down on me because you're doing ballet. And, you know, at first I was like, oh, like, like, how could you say that? Like, I'm your son. Like, you know, again, the teenage angst, you know, coming up, like, like you just have to be like, so like, why aren't you supportive of me? You know, but really understanding that from them, like it's, it's not their fault. They're just in an environment where that is just the norm. You know, and so for them to continue dealing with that, all the while, like trying to understand like why I was wanting to do ballet and where I was coming from, um, I honestly couldn't be luckier. And so I honestly feel very, very fortunate that my parents um, were open-minded enough to kind of understand that. Because I think that's very atypical of most Korean parents. Um and so I think I, I just got very, I was very fortunate to be in that kind of situation. Um, yeah, but I just, I was like, I'm doing ballet and that's what I'm doing and I have to do this. And <laughs> and I felt like I didn't have a choice. And I, I just, I told them, I was like, if, if I do something else, I'll be so miserable. I will be so depressed. Like, I just have to be doing this for me to like live. And that sounds so like, I just sound so crazy as I say it out loud, but yeah. that was really how I felt, you know, at the time when I started, because I just, I, I knew I had to do it that badly. Um, I think it's also good to uh, recognize and to honor our parents for all the crap that they had to deal with, because as easy yeah. as it is for us to sit here and, um, you know, because uh, what we actually did in our generation, Daniel and everybody else, is we went from survival um, let's keep in mind that at least uh, for Koreans and Vietnamese and other countries as well, uh, we went from literal war to mm. whatever the heck we are doing in like one generation. And that's really hard uh, for people to, uh, I guess, you know, adjust and also to recognize that our parents too are a byproduct of their surroundings and the stuff that Completely. their parents, our grandparents told them. Right. So, and then because uh, collectivism or, you know, mono thinking culture that we are if you go to the social circles if you go to the churches if you go to these places and everybody says believe this like how hard is it for you to be standing up on your own two feet and saying no when especially in a language challenged immigrant community that's your only social circle right so it's easy for us um you know second third whatever uh asian american children of immigrants and immigrants ourselves to think about it that way. Um, but it sucked for them too. And in their best intent, like, can you imagine like the amount of pressure they felt to invest in you academically? Like mm-hmm. nobody spends that money cause they want to, right. There's something oh, yeah. that's deeper inside them that says like, we feel pressure to keep up and um, it's not fair for me and you to sit here way after the fact to judge them for thinking that way. Um, 
And so, you know, that's part of why we share these stories, right? To help potentially uh, break the cycle of uh, defining success in one or two ways. Um, and when we define, the dangerous thing is when we define success in one or two ways, we're also defining failure in so many ways. And so mm. if you don't go to one, two or three schools, what does that make you? If you don't go to end up working at one or three companies, what does that make you? It shouldn't yeah. matter, right? And, and I think especially our parents, they, they have a, a, a spectacular way of justifying things like, well, you know, I didn't get to go because of whatever, but you have to, right? And it's, it's sort of unfair. Um, but I, I think, you know, um, take the time to understand that uh, no parent wants bad for their kid. It's just how we define the good and the bad, I think, can change from time to time. Man, this is, uh, this is good stuff, man. I'm really glad we're having this conversation. And yeah, I know it's going to be helpful for so, so many people listening. As, as you know, uh, we're, and, and 2020 has been an interesting year, right? And especially for people to figure out what they want to do with their lives career-wise. And, yeah. um, you know, what is the point of life? And do we help? Do we, do we exist to serve capitalism or do we exist to serve a different purpose? Um, uh, take me through right around your graduation, um, you deciding to do pursue dance as a full-time and share with us to give the rest of us uh, folks who are not as familiar with the industry. What does that mean? There's, there's no dance companies that you, right? Like there's no entry level rotational dance, but like, what does that mean for yeah. a recent college grad to jump into dance as a full-time endeavor? And right. did you have to uh, pursue other side gigs and stuff to, to uh, support yourself because that, that may not be a readily available opportunity for you full-time? Sure. Before we go on, I just wanted to briefly mention to uh, people who are listening, if, um, if, I, if you're in situations where you feel like you're wanting to pursue something that your parents can't understand by I think my biggest piece of advice would be to kind of keep them involved and keep the conversation going. I think that's kind of the biggest thing that I've learned. And I think something that I regard as somewhat of a mistake is kind of my stubbornness of being like, I'm going to do this. And if you can't understand me, then I don't want to have this conversation. And a lot of the time, it, a lot of the time their anxiety and their fear comes from just a lack of knowing and a lack of understanding what it is you're doing. And it's really hard it was really hard for me to not take that personally and kind of be like, but it's really just because they care about you and they want, they want to help you the best they can. But what if it's something like dance where my parents had, they didn't know anything about, they would, you know, they just need to be kept in the loop. And that's really where it's like keeping the communication with your parents, I think is the biggest thing that I've learned to keep them informed and like understand where you're coming from. Um, and definitely not easy, way easier said than done, but understanding that it's a process and not like you understand me or you don't again, kind of what, kind of what, are you, what you were saying before, it's not binary, right? It's a, it's a fluid yeah. process that depends on the context. Um, so yeah. So after graduation, after graduation, I had only been doing ballet for two years and for people who are maybe not as familiar that that's not going to cut it. Uh, you, <laughs> People start about people decide they're going to be professional ballet dancers when they're 12 years old, and they have been doing it since they're six. And the reason for that is because ballet is so dependent on your physical attributes, and you're you're doing such a foreign thing with your body because you're turning out your muscles, and 
um, that kind of endeavor is so unnatural that it's really important that your bones and your your muscles, your musculature is shaped in a certain way from an early age that allows you to do ballet in a way that doesn't damage your body. And so as a 20-year-old, I was not, I felt like um, I had it all up here because I studied it. I had watched videos. I had dedicated my entire life to it. But physically, my body was not at all ready to be in a professional setting. And I recognized that. So after college, I enrolled in a full-time ballet training program in Vancouver. And I was in the same program as high school girls, 15, 16-year-old girls. And there I was, a 21, 21-year-old college graduate from Swarthmore in Vancouver, in Canada, with a bunch of 15, 16-year-old girls because I wanted to do ballet. And so I did that for a year. It's really, really tough. So it was just nine to six three ballet classes a day, partnering, conditioning, like just physically doing that every single day, six days a week. Um, and it was really painful. I'm not going to lie. Um, also because I never been to Vancouver. It was my first time out of the, out of um, the safe college bubble that Swarthmore was. And I was taking ballet class three times a day and it was, it was really painful, but the whole time I was like, this is what it takes. And I still want to do it. And for me, it was it was a fact that I was working hard and I was improving and I could see the results because ballet itself is so black and white. Either you you hit that pirouette, your leg is there or it's not. And for me, I, I could clearly see when I put in more work to shaping my body, no matter how painful it was as a 20 year old man trying to do something that you're supposed to start when you're an eight year old girl, um, I could see the improvements. And that was really what kept me going, knowing that I was getting better. I was coming in every day. I was working harder than I was the day before. Um, and I think my teachers there recognized that in me and, and they respected that. Cause you know, at first they're like, okay, a 21 year old man, right. like coming here, you know, there, but they really saw that I was putting in the work and the effort and they respected that. Um, that program itself was um, a very classically oriented ballet program and so it made very clear to me that classical ballet was not kind of the route that I wanted to personally go and I much more preferred um, a genre of dance called contemporary ballet which um, uses ballet as its foundation but the choreography is much more kind of they deal with kind of like current themes of like um, whatever it's a bit more abstract and um, it's it's kind of like in between modern dance which can get very loosely interpretive and kind of a little bit more out there, more abstract, and between ballet. And so I like that it had the strictness and the aesthetic of ballet, but it kind of had more um, room for exploration and more, and for me, it was like more choice, sorry, more ability to express myself as an individual. Um, so I so I knew that. And so I then I went to San Francisco for a two-year contemporary ballet training program. Um, called Alonzo King Lines, which is one of the probably most respected contemporary ballet like institutions within probably, I would say the world. Um, and so when I was in San Francisco, I was working five jobs at one point to make a living, to survive there. Wow. Um, because I was still, I was still technically a student in the training program. And so I was working five different jobs to kind of survive. 
And I made it very clear to my parents, I was like, I'm going to do my best to do this on my own because I need to see for myself if this is really what I want to do. And if, if I want to do it, then I have to do it on my own and figure out um, if, if I'm willing to sacrifice, if I, if I have what it takes to pursue this profession. And one of the jobs was working as a, um, a cashier at like a burger shop because um, the hours that we danced again were from nine to six every day. And so we had very erratic hours. And so I would, I would dance from 96. I would work at, a, at the burger restaurant from 6.30 to 11.30. And then I would do that again the next day. And then on the weekends, I would go and tutor SATs. SAT, oh. ACT, SSAT. Um, and at the burger shop that I worked, because I was in San Francisco, where, um, where all my peers from high school were working in startups and you know, working at LinkedIn and Twitter and Google, there were a lot of instances where I was working as a cashier and I would see people that I went to high school with come in. And that really, that really broke me because that was really, really hard for me to, um, mm. you know, like it was just so, and also for me, because there, I, I didn't know of anyone else who was from my kind of background and my upbringing who was doing the arts like I was. That was really disheartening. But, you know, the, the contemporary ballet program that I did in San Francisco, it, in so many ways, it reaffirmed why I wanted to dance. And it taught me how to not just be a better dancer, but how to be a better person. And so I owe so much to those two years in San Francisco because, first of all, that really shaped kind of, my, that was a really nice way to end my training. And it kind of, it instilled in me the work ethic that you need to be, be a professional dancer. And so even though I was, doing the grind and working five jobs, it was worth it for me because the, the people I was with, the lessons I was learning in this program, it made me so excited to finally be a professional because that was just my dream. You know, that was, I'd given up so much for it and I wasn't about to give it up. Um, yeah, so then after that was when I, after those two years was then when I moved to Cleveland to join a ballet company there and that was kind of the beginning of my professional career your story's crazy man because it feels like and and end of the second part was more of your your choice and probably your um maybe stubbornness or desire to prove yourself but um you sort of went through two generations of struggle right like what your parents did and then they get to a point where they can um send you to the right schools and, and provide you for the opportunities and um you by choice of wanting to pursue this other path sort of said that's cool, but I'm going to do this other thing. And you're on your mm -hmm. way to, um, you know, proving, um, I don't want to say prove everybody wrong, but proving yourself right in the way that you can pursue this and, and be happy with it and, um, and be successful, which, which I think is a lot of, not, it's not just an Asian American thing, but I think a lot of the times when people who pursue, um, whether it be arts or entrepreneurship or anything else, um, when people get to whatever mythical level of success that they deem worthy then they celebrate mm -hmm. you then they brag about you and they go i went to school with mm. that guy i knew he had it in him all along you know i knew she was That's whatever true. but in the struggle it's really crappy right um and it's either um you know both are awful like just send uh not the emotions you can sense and the silence both suck um because you know people aren't 
really rooting for you to succeed. They're almost just sort of observing to see if you can figure it out. And then when yeah. you make it, then they all come out of the woodwork and be like, oh my God, congratulations. And part of it, you're like, well, where the hell were you two years ago? Yeah. Three years ago, you know? And and so I, I think that's also another fascinating thing um, just to note, like, you know, um, especially now when so much of our world has been turned upside down and the way we see the world and the way we see problems and the way we see, um, you know, how we want to live our lives may not necessarily fit all these traditional molds that we once had. Um, it'd be fascinating to see how traditional higher education comes out of COVID. Yeah. You know, when, when I talk to students or parents, like nobody wants to pay 70 grand to go to a Zoom school. Um, and there's going to be a few schools who will, because of their brand and reputation, will see through it. But there are also going to be many other schools that can't justify that from a value proposition perspective. And so, you know, how are we going to define success? How are we going to um, define what's important and uh, just stop judging each other so much? Yeah, that's really cool, man. I mean, we haven't really touched on this throughout our conversation, but, you know, Dan's challenging for a male nonetheless, but challenging even more so because of our lack of representation as Asian men um, or as yeah. Asians in general in, in such a, not our arts together, yes, um, but even more so specifically in dance. Share with us a little bit of your observation and your understanding of the industry in, in terms of diversity holistically first, and then share with us a few things that that you experienced, maybe some good, maybe some not so good, that gave you either really good feelings about your decision to go this path or, um, you know, some experiences there? Yeah. So as an individual, as I get older, um, I really start to relate more and more to kind of my Korean background. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that because my parents moved back to Korea um, when I was in college, so then I would start going home to Korea. And when I was little, my parents actually discouraged me from speaking Korean at home, even though Korean technically was my first language. They discouraged me from speaking at home because they were so scared that I wouldn't learn English because they had such a hard time with it. So then when I went to Korea, I was like, I don't even know how to speak to people. I don't even know how to read or write. And so I was in this, I was at this place where I was like, I don't know anything about my background, my heritage. Um, and so I kind of, I really like took it upon myself to, um, I started learning Korean through Rosetta Stone. <laughs> and then I ended up enrolling at like different Korean schools in Korea, like on my summers and my winters. And I feel like now I've, I'm at a place where um, I would say I'm definitely like fluent, but not proficient. So I've reached a level where I'm able to get around in Korea. And I'm at the point where native Korean speakers will look at me and they'll be like, oh, your Korean's pretty good. So I'm happy with that. <laughs> um, but anyways, I bring that up because as I grow older, like I that part of me just becomes more and more important. Um, and yeah, you asked the question at the perfect time because right when I kind of entered the profession as a professional, then I moved to Cleveland, Ohio, which um, was really, really hard, really, really difficult for me. Um, just the lack of Asians, just period. You know, the lack of diversity, um, and representation for people that look like me. And I didn't realize how, how important that was until I was finally in the profession and I didn't see, I didn't see anyone who looked like me. 
who had who had the same experience as me. And granted, I have a very interesting, weird, roundabout way of getting into the profession, but um, Asian American representation in ballet was really hard to find. And I also had instances as you know in my training where people were would say things like, "Oh, like you're such a hard worker, but because of your oriental size, you're never going to get a job." Um, or they, yeah, because in ballet, well, if we rewind a little, think about it. Ballet is for white people by white people. Sure, it's very but to use the O word in now is a little. Oh, bit I know. Interesting. Oh, completely. Yeah, and so because <laughs> because ballet is such an such a historic art form, and there's such a there's such an emphasis on preserving the classism of it. A lot of the mm. racist and a lot of the, um, you know, those kinds of behaviors and attitudes have carried on with the art form, which is obviously less than ideal. So there are a lot of moments in my training where I would get little comments like that. Or I even remember in London, when I studied about a dance conservatory, there was me, I was Daniel, there was another, um, another friend of mine, he was a Malaysian, his name was David. And people kept, teachers kept mixing us up. And like the first two weeks, I was like, okay. And then it was three months. They're still mixing up. I was like, that's not okay. <laughs> um, so like little things here and there where I was like, sure. okay, like whatever. It's not a big deal. Um, and then I entered the profession and I was like, no, actually it is a big deal because I'm not, I don't see people around me who look like me. And I remember as a professional, when we would go to like outreach performances to schools, to like elementary schools, and we do like, like ballets, like Peter and the Wolf where, um, you know, we're trying to engage with kids and get them interested in ballet. And I found myself like really, really drawn to seeing like little Asian kids in the audience. And I'd be like, I'd be like on the scope, on the lookout for them. And then if I saw one performing, I would be like, I'd be like, I don't want to run this ballet for another three more times for all these kids, but I'm going to do it for you for that one Asian kid in the audience because, because I didn't have that, you know, like yeah. when I was, because I was so, even though I was so motivated to do ballet, I felt like I couldn't, really look there were too many people that I could look up to that I was like oh I want to be like him I want to be like that person um and so now and so that's why it's so important for me to um kind of in this position to kind of go out and you know share my story and do it for and it also I um as a ballet teacher I I really kind of part like I really make it my purpose to help out like Asian American students that I've had because because again it is such a it is such a unique experience to want to do something that's so passion driven and um something that brings you joy because that's so like antithetical to what it, the Asian American experience and I struggled a lot with that and so I I want to be there to help people kind of overcome that because I remember what it was like um I think that's important um but I want to ask you, man, like why the, it, it seems like you've chosen perhaps the most difficult thing to do in the world. <laughs> um, we'll, we'll even put aside the opportunities you could have had given your, um, you know, your, your academic background. Um, but what, how did that impact you? Because it's, it's nobody would have blamed you for giving up, right? Because the competitive world that you uh, decided to fight in is hard enough, even if you were a, you know, privileged blonde hair, white dude, but then mm -hmm. to add the layer of uh, discrimination and racism and, you know, all the other 
uh, challenges that come with not being of uh, the dominant voice in that industry. It just makes it that much harder. Why, why, and I don't mean it it's in a crass way, but like, why do you continue to pursue it? Why is it that important to you that you see this through? Hmm. I think um, as a person, I really enjoy challenges and I like taking on things that other people say, oh, you can't do that. Um, and I think I owe that to my mom because she's a very similar disposition and growing up because we had such similar personalities, we got in like so many fights, but it's, you know, now like we're, we have such similar personalities and, and I don't know. I think there's just something about ballet that, um, the classicism of it, the aesthetic, the objective, like beauty of it. And and I hate that, I mean, I think this is with any profession, but it, it can never just be about the art or can never just be about the work. There's always the politics that come with it. And with ballet, it's the years and years of racism, the years and years of an art form that prioritizes whiteness above anything. And it's, I mean, even with body types, it's like if your body type isn't that of a skinny white man or woman, then you're just tossed to the side. And, and it just, it kills me because it's like, it's something that I love and it brings me so much joy just to even take ballet class. Like it's, it's completely irrational and completely unfounded. And, you know, it's just, it just makes me so, it just makes me feel like it's something that I need to be doing. And, and recently having left the ballet company um, in Cleveland and moving to New York, part of that was because of COVID and how it impacted the arts industries. But it also was kind of the politics, the body shaming, those kinds of experiences that, for me personally have tarnished my relationship with ballet a little bit. And so I feel like right now I'm at a point where I kind of have to step back and reevaluate um, what ballet means to me, because I think while I respect myself for having the, um, the confidence and the drive as a pretty overweight, out of shape, 20 year old male, who said to his professors, I'm going to be a ballet dancer. And they looked at me like I was crazy. Um, I think I was, I was pretty naive in thinking that it would just be about getting to do, getting it just, how can I say this? I think I was naive in thinking that it would just be about the dance and the art. And, and it's just, I think I'm just, I'm just in love with the movement of ballet, the way the mathematical nature of it, like it's so specific, like it's so black and white, like you either, you're either doing a tondu or you're not doing a tondu, like it's so correct and correct. Um, I love that about it. I love the structure of it. Um, you do ballet class every day and it's kind of akin to like, if you're gonna do scales for an instrument, like you just do that every day for your technique. Um, I love the, like you get to, like for me, I think the biggest part of it is, it's another way for me to like express my love for music. Because it's like, when I play an instrument, it's like you're just sitting there, like you're, you're almost like trapped in a way. But with ballet, it's like, you have incredible music, you get to express that through your body. And like that, that for me, like that physical realization of it is so fulfilling. Um, yeah, they're just, 
there's just so many things about just ballet itself that make me so happy. And I think those are the things that kept me going. That plus knowing that this is a dream that I've had, um, I guess not for that long, but just I just knew at that moment that like this is what I wanted to be doing. For you, what would what would success mean for you in terms of your chosen path? Yeah. Um, so when I first started out, success was success was just being a making this my career. That was my idea of success, you know, and and now I think that this, that kind of definition has changed because well, first of all, I managed to accomplish that dream, which when I think about it is still like pretty mind boggling that I was able to kind of accomplish that given kind of where I started from. And now I just, now I've, now I think I owe it to myself because I've sac- I feel like I've sacrificed so much for ballet for this really, really specific esoteric profession that I just irrationally chose. Um, I feel like I'm at a point where it's so hard and it's so much risk and there's so much sacrifice for it. I owe it to myself to be doing it in environments that like foster my relationship with ballet in a positive way. And I don't, and for me at this point, if I'm in situations where I see like body shaming, manipulation, or putting down of people who are next to me, then I I would rather not do it than be in that kind of environment because it's because I sacrificed so much for it. I'm only willing to accept environments that foster my love and my uh, my love for ballet in a positive way because because I've given up so much for it. And that's all that those are the kinds of standards and stipulations that I set now because I've given up so much for it already and I still love it. But I owe it to myself now. To only put myself in scenarios like that. Let's talk a little bit about 2020. Obviously, crazy year, not over yet. We give people context. Uh, rising cases. The uh, yeah, the, the the most cases we've had, rolling average in a long, long time. Um, and and with the weather getting much colder, and just mm-hmm. a lot of things are not looking good. You work in an entertainment industry that is not considered an essential. Uh, many stages are shut down. Many things in the arts, entertainment, sports have all been shut down with uh, un- uncertain return plans. Um, how, how has that impacted you and your development and your outlook for um, what you want to do in the next couple of years? Yeah, so um, so right before COVID hit, I our company just had toured to Havana, Cuba, and we had done Romeo and Juliet. And I actually got to play uh, Mercutio, which is like a soloist role. And so um, that was obviously an incredible opportunity. And I I had come to the Midwest to this ballet company because I knew that my goal was to dance in ballet companies in New York. But in order for me to get to those, to get to that place in my career, I had to be in a place that would really basically kick my ass with ballet because I, I still, obviously I started at 20, I still needed I needed more time to refine my musculature and my performance experience. And 
And so that was the only reason I stuck it through in the Midwest for two years, because personally that was traumatizing in a lot of different ways. And in so many ways I didn't realize until I left. And so while I was there, that, that was a, that was like the motivation for me because I knew that I wanted to dance the companies here, but in order to do that, I had to be in a smaller, more intimate setting so I can really figure out who I am as a dancer, as an artist. So right before COVID, we had gone to Cuba. I had done an audition in New York for one of my dream contemporary ballet companies. There were 200 people. There were two, there were three cuts and it came down to six girls, six guys. And I was one of the guys. And for me, it was like that had validated all of the, those two years in the Midwest of living in perpetual whiteness with <laughs> no Asian communities to feel a part of. Mm. And so, and on top of that, I was making connections with other ballet companies in New York. And so at that point, I, I was like, this is all worth it. You know, I had, I had, I felt like I was at the top of my game because this was what my goal was. And I was that much closer to it. Um, and then COVID-19 hit and as all the ballet dancers in the world, we kind of were like, okay, well, it'll get better. It'll get better. Right. And obviously as we all know now, it did not. And it is only getting worse from here on out. Um, the New York city ballet, which is basically one of the best ballet companies in the world, all their top dancers are furloughed and they're not going to be working until September, 2021. And these are the best ballet dancers and like, and they're unemployed, like they don't have any work. And to see the prioritization of how the American government views the arts. Um, in the New York Times, they were talking a couple of months ago about how the NBA had rented out Disneyland, or I think, sorry, <laughs> Disney World in Florida, and they have COVID testing for everyone three times a week. They have all these systems in place for the NBA and no, obviously no shade on the NBA at all, but just the fact that they have the resources and they have the support to do something like that while ballet dancers are just unemployed and the entire industries are debilitated. And so that happened. Um, and I started to realize that my future career aspirations were not going to be a reality for a very long time. And but I still knew I had to leave Cleveland because I couldn't, I couldn't be there anymore. And again, I, I started becoming a lot more aware of kind of different politics and different situations that were not favorable in the least within being a ballet company and kind of the bureaucratic nature of it. And, and I realized that being in that environment for so long was taking a toll on my relationship with ballet. And so um, right now, personally, I'm at a point where I kind of said this before, but I'm reevaluating the role that ballet plays in my life. And it's really, it's been a really emotionally trying experience to kind of figure that out. Because again, as, as I highlighted my story, I had given up so much for it. And, and now it's kind of like, well, what, so where am I right now is I'm, I'm thinking maybe with ballet, it needs to be something on my own terms. Because like I said, I, I'm not willing to be in environments where people are shamed for their body or people are being repressed or manipulated because then it's not worth it for me. Because um, 
And so right now I am I, I'm exploring like other um, possible kind of careers. I um, have recently been writing a lot of articles for dance magazine publications. So I'm thinking maybe some like maybe something consumed with writing and maybe about like Asian American representation. Um, and yeah, so I don't know. I'm, I'm here in New York and I'm just, I'm trying to unpack, unpack the experience of what ballet has meant to me. And I, I still have a lot of dreams and hopes that I haven't fulfilled yet within ballet. And I don't plan on giving them up anytime soon. So I don't, I don't evaluate this as the end of my relationship with ballet, but I think I need some time to figure out to what capacity I want to be engaging in it. And also obviously to wait out, hopefully for the arts industries to be recuperated from the um, emotional impact of COVID. I'm glad you're going through that now because I think it's going to either help you repurpose and rechart or to have even more conviction and go down the path and slightly uh, different perspective. Um, whatever that, however that plays out, sounds like you have, you know, the better part of a year to either try new things or to um, leverage other gifts and other uh, paths in addition or on top of ballet, whether it is, mm -hmm. um, you know, sharing your story more or working with young people or, you know, leveraging a lot of the new media that exists uh, to get word about your story and um, yeah. ballet out there. Because it's, it's unfortunate that, you know, um, we can't back, we cannot get back to life as uh, normal as we'd like to um, for at least a little while longer. Um, obviously, there are, are um, promising signs out there that uh, good things are headed our way, but these things take time. And so, um, yeah, I, I think it's, your, your your story, man, I think it's even more awesome to share it at this point because you're still going through it. Um, mm. I think had we talked 20 years from now, you probably would have forgotten or have a rosy memory of this part of your life where, mm -hmm. um, you know, we, we, we tend to uh, minimize uh, some of the more challenging parts of our memory because why? Uh, why? Why live in that? But share with us what you'd like to share or what you'd like to tell um, as a form of encouragement or to inspire a young person out there um, who similar to you may have this burning desire to pursue something that feels right in their heart. Um, but given family, society, community, or even self pressure of having defined success in a specific way, they don't feel that they can pursue it. And I think it's even more challenging now because um, young folks, because they're not going to school and life is different, um, they're not getting to spend as much time away from their parents as they'd like to. Um, and that's yeah. just the reality of the situation that if it's toxic, then it's more toxicity right now and um, more pressure. Um, and so um, share with us a couple of thoughts on and what you'd like to share with somebody who might have been in your shoes a little while ago. I think a lot of people who come from Asian American backgrounds, um, there's this overwhelming emphasis to work hard. And it's this kind of like monolithic idea of like, just work hard and everything will be fine. 
just work hard. And that I found that first of all, what does that even really mean? <laughs> um, and second of all, when you're pursuing something that other people can't understand, um, I would encourage you not just to work hard, but to work smart. So you have to find ways to prove to the people around you that this means that much to you and you're willing to put in the work and the effort that it requires. And so it requires keeping, keeping your parents in the loop and keeping them informed about what it is you want to do and not being so, um, not being so recalcitrant or so, so easy to dismiss their questions or their anxieties about what it is you're doing. And it's constantly keeping the people around you updated as to why this is something that you want to be doing. And I think for me, what it was personally was I, I laid it out for them. I said, I'm going to do this for a year. I'm going to do this for two years. And that's showing that kind of structure and that kind of self-motivation proves to them that this is important to you and you're willing to go the extra mile to do this. And a lot of the times people react negatively because again, they just don't know. And so you have to take it upon yourself to inform them and to let them know your goals and your aspirations. And so that would be one piece of advice. Another piece of advice would be once you recognize that an environment doesn't serve you, you have to be the one to remove yourself from it. And there's no, there's no reason for you to, once you recognize that this is not helping you or not serving you when you know deep down inside what it is you want to do, it's on you to say, I'm leaving because this place doesn't serve me anymore. And sometimes that can apply to relationships and with people you know, and you need to surround yourself with people who will motivate you, who will support you. And again, that experience in the effort of kind of giving advice, it does seem a little ambiguous and a bit of a generalization, but I feel like that's really important. That's something that I have valued in my experience, knowing that if I'm in an environment that doesn't serve me because I know exactly what it is I want to be doing, then I don't need to be here. And I don't need to um, be taking other people's bullshit, you know? And so I, it's really hard because you have to balance kind of being really stubborn and obstinate, you know, and kind of, if you know this is what you want to do, you have to go for it hundred percent. But at the same time, you have to be aware of your environment, of the people around you. You have to constantly be negotiating, um, is this environment right for me? Am I being surrounded by people who support me in my endeavors? If not, then got to find somewhere else. And it's, I think for me, the reason I was able to, I don't want to say make it because that sounds so like, again, what does that even mean? But the reason why I'm here, I think is because I was able to manage those two things, right? It's like, be really stubborn and know what it is you want to be doing, but also constantly check in with where you are and where your surroundings are. And I think that is just, that is, I think I learned that because I'm Asian American and when I go to Korea, I'm too Americanized. When I come here, I'm not white. Like we yeah. never feel like we fit in, but um, this is actually something that I learned from 
an interview between Sharon Choi and Sandra Oh, and Sharon Choi is the translator for Parasite. Um, oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so they did this interview about Sandra Oh's role in Killing Eve, and Sharon was talking about how she grew up in Korea, but she spoke English and she didn't necessarily relate to kind of the Korean cultural standards. Right. And growing up, she felt like she never fit in, but now she's at a point where she realizes that that experience of never fitting in is an advantage. And I feel like for me, because I was constantly negotiating growing up, my parents being like, you're going to grow up to be a doctor. These collectivist ideas that tell us that it's the community that matters more than the unit. Balancing that with these Western contexts where it's all about what you want to do and how you're going to change the world. Negotiating, learning English and being fluent in English, but then having to speak Korean at home. And like, you're always, as an Asian American, you're always constantly balancing these things and that has such relevance to so many other experiences in your life and i think um and again as asian americans we're so used to minimizing our experiences and minimizing our accomplishments and you know for me even coming onto this podcast i was i was talking to talking to my friend aaron and he and i was like oh but i'm not i'm not good enough like i'm not I'm not like a amazing ballet dancer. And he's like, what are you talking about? Like, you have a whole story. You have an experience. Like you're perfectly enough to share your story. And, you know, and so like being Asian American, that sets you up for so many different contexts because you're constantly switching contexts, languages, the people you hang out with, the food you eat, like it's constantly a negotiative experience. And that really, and I think we like, we like to perceive that as a negative trait because we don't feel like we fit in, but in actuality, it's, it's such a, it's such a gift and it's such a positive trait that um, can help you in so many ways. It's all in the way that I think we, it's how we define normal in America that I think is really toxic. Mm. We are, we are often uh, called minorities, right? Uh, that is to get nerdy. It's only a minority if you get to choose what the denominator is. If you can mm, control the denominator, like the then you can control yeah. how you view the numerator, right? So right. Um, particular to Asian folks, we are not the minority of the world. We are four out of seven billion people. So however you cut it, and this is not a we're better than you. I'm just saying that on a global scale, um, we are the majority. But particularly if you compare us to the population of a country where white people had a head start. They did some crazy stuff and mean evil stuff to get to where they are and created laws to inhibit more of us from coming earlier. Of course, we're going to be a minority. Well, no shit. Um, and then to use that across the board as a way to suppress some of the things that help us shine. That's really unfortunate. Right. And, uh, and what I think people forget, because American machoism and American um, bravado is so prevalent and almost accepted as the norm, mm -hmm. if somebody has a challenge speaking English, that means they speak something else. Like, why can't people understand that? That, you know, um, and most of, and again, not to, I guess it is what it is. Most people who give people about having, or most people who give others crap about having an accent only speak one language, right? True. So, so true. 
and, and Americans are notoriously known for going to other countries and demanding foreigners to speak English because they're In English. Right. Like, oh, yeah. I'm visiting you, therefore you have to cater to me. And yet here we are, and we get upset when people are trying to learn our language. And so I think it's just the paradigm and, and the perspective changing that needs to happen of just, you know, what are we on a global scale? What are we at a human scale, right? And I think um, I, I, identity politics and identity, everything in America has been really detrimental to progress and to uh, creating uh, healing across everything because it's, yeah. You're different than me. Um, you know, even just, you know, we're, we're so, um, most of America is, is so um, pro-America and anti-everything that it's just this notion of uh, foreign and domestic, right? But what is foreign mm -hmm. versus domestic? It depends what country you're from, right? Like, you know, it's like, oh, you know, these, you know, imported European cars. Well, if you go to Germany, they're local domestic cars. Right? Right. Like, and so it just depends on how you view it. And then so like right. it also speaks to our own identities that we can be fluid and we can uh, re-identify and, and reinvent ourselves however way we want um, and, and not be stuck to sort of these norms, right? Um, again, yeah. um, we were raised by people who literally were raised in a different continent in a different decade under severely different circumstances. And so it's hard for us to see eye to eye. It's even going to be more challenging for our generation to raise kids here who will even be more audacious in thinking that they have an American right to belong and an American right to be treated mm. equally. Do I think that's going to happen? Sadly, no. I don't think it's going to happen as easily or as uh, you know, uh, easily as we'd like to. But you yeah. got to keep working at it, right? Um, and, and I think it starts and continues with people like you, Daniel, that um, shatter our stereotypes um, that is a proud Korean male ballet dancer still on his path um, and not because you don't have the resume to back it up. I think, you know, it's even more impressive that you had the opportunities and you had the privilege and the education. And then you said, I'm still going to try to pursue something. Um, will you retire as a ballet person? I don't know. Uh, will you definitely learn and be great at whatever the heck it is that you end up doing because of this experience? Absolutely. And so, um, you know, I, I am so proud of you. I am so excited that we got to share a little bit of time today. Um, and it inspires me because I, too, have looked at the world based on the way I was brought up, my stereotypes and my prejudices. Um, and having this show and having this platform and the ability to speak to a lot of different people has also made me a better human being, a better dad and a better friend because um, you have no choice but to uh, be a better, be that if you share these deep stories with so many people. Yeah. And so uh, would love for you, Daniel, to help us close out the show um, in the way that we always do uh, here on the Asian Americans and share with us anything that's on your mind, um, inspirational, funny, I don't know anything that's on your mind to, to our audience and the, and the greater Asian American community and help us finish out the show by completing the letter. Dear Asian Americans. Dear Asian Americans. Very few people understand what of a, how much of a culturally niche experience it is to be negotiating two different cultures at all times. 
when we go back to our mother countries, we're too Americanized. When we come here, we're not white. And so we grow up in this perpetual state of ambiguity, of almost purgatory, where we don't, we don't know where we belong. And for so long, I personally have seen that as a detriment because I struggled to fit in and whatever it is I was doing. Um, growing up in an academically competitive environment, I didn't fit in. Within ballet, um, not seeing anyone who looked like me, I didn't fit in there either. And now I'm at a point where I realized that my ability to have been in all those situations and to have made it past those tough trying experiences is an advantage and it's a strength. Um, and it's a testament to it's a testament to the way that we were raised and the cultures that our parents instilled in us. And also to our ability to adapt to our environment. And I think our our parent cultures teach us to kind of go with the flow and to not disrupt the way things are meant to be. And to that, I would say that's bullshit. And I think now is the time for Asian Americans to speak up and to be unapologetic, sharing our experiences. We're conditioned to minimize our wins and our advantages and to kind of humbly bow our heads to other people who are quote unquote more successful than we are. Um, and I would encourage you to not feel that way. I would encourage you to speak up and find ways to promote your voice and your experience in whatever profession or in whatever um, field you wanna continue in. And I would also wanna say if, if any of you are in a similar situation as me or trying to pursue something that others view as unsuccessful, then please reach out. I would love to talk, collaborate, whatever. Even if, even if you, if you just want to talk about the experience of being Korean American, let me know. I would love to talk with you, write about it. Um, especially in the New York area, I, I feel really blessed to have had opportunities to share my story, and I. I want to pass on the baton to, you know, the next generation of Asian Americans and help motivate them to share their stories because um, I think we have a lot of accomplishments that need to be shared with the world. And I want to be there to help with that. Thank you. And then that last piece that you shared, I think, is important. Nobody has it figured out, figured anything out in life. Um, yeah. We, we just, yeah, I, I think it's funny. Um, you know, people go on these, like, I have everything figured out. You know, I can teach you everything. And uh, the reality is, is we're all still on our path. And, and until we, you know, we breathe our last breath, we're still trying to figure out life and do the mm -hmm. best way that we can. And so if you're out there and I know that his offer is a genuine offer, reach out and to connect. It's really funny how this show comes together sometimes you know, big, big shout outs to John Lim, our guest from, yes. um, I think episode eight you, or nine, like six months ago, who, who you guys overlapped in college and, and so many other stories of people responding to other stories that you hear on this story, either to volunteer to come on to guest or to do other wonderful things in the community. And so that's what we want to do. I don't really know how you're going to receive the story and this message and how you're going to react upon it and to build upon it, but do something. Reach out to Daniel, reach out to me if you want to talk. Yeah. Introduce us to other people that might benefit from hearing the story or 
just uh, spending some time together. It's a challenging time for everybody. And even though we got some really fantastic news last week about the direction of our country, nothing's Ooh. really fundamentally, it's, which is great, but it that hasn't really fundamentally changed the way we live our daily lives, right? Yeah. COVID still sucks. We have a dude that won't concede. He can mess up a lot of shit in the next 70 some odd days. Like there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of stuff that we have to figure out. And so mm -hmm. we just simply want you to feel less alone, whether it is from your career choice, whether it is from your life experience or whether it is just being where you are. We know this was a long one, but I think it was worth it. So thank you to listening. And um, I encourage, however you do it, it doesn't have to be here on this show or in, on another podcast, but share your story. Write if that feels more natural. Video yeah. if that feels more natural. Call somebody if that feels more natural. But share your story because we want to normalize everything. We want to normalize a Korean male ballet dancer sharing his story. It shouldn't be so unique. And so, and the way we can do that is to just encourage everybody to share their story. I know our parents told us to just keep their head down and do blah, blah, blah. blah. We, we've heard it all. Enough. Yep. Enough of that Enough. stuff. You know, um, share your story, help share other people's stories. And let's make sure that we can get to a place where everything is just so normal and that we don't feel alone in the world. Daniel, this has been such a treat for me. This has been an honor and a blessing for me to have shared a little bit of your world uh, with our audience today. So thank you for what you do. I know. Um, you know, things aren't where you want them to be here in 2020 and beyond, but wishing you the best of luck and uh, congratulations on everything that you have done so far. Thank you so much, Jerry. Thank you for giving me a platform to share my story. I really appreciate it. I want to thank Daniel for coming on the show and sharing his story with us. And I know for him and a lot of other people in the arts industry, in the performing arts world, um, it's been an especially challenging year. And so I want to thank him for coming on and, and being brave enough to share his story with us. And to all of our friends in the creative field, we're with you. And please let us know how we can help um, supporting in whatever way we can uh, to make sure that we can see you on a stage soon. Um, again, celebrating your gifts and all your hard work. Um, if you enjoyed Daniel's story, uh, please do let us know. Rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on social media at Dear Asian Americans everywhere, except on Twitter. We're just at Dear Asian Am. And please do let a friend or two know about the show so that we can continue to grow, to share more amazing Asian American stories with you all. Thank you again for listening. And as we take time to reflect on what we are grateful for this week and every day, I am thankful for you. And I am thankful that we are able to use this medium and this platform to share our amazing Asian American stories. Signing off for episode 86 of the Asian Americans, I am your host, Jerry Wan. And until next time, please be healthy, safe, and happy.